Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. But I could be I could be a hat guy. You could be, huh? The guy at the store said, the guy at the store said, um, you know, the hat that you're buying, we call that the gateway hat. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, I, you know, once you buy one, I mean, you'll be back. And his buddy's standing there, and he looks up. Oh, yeah. You'll be back. <laughs> wow. Now, that's a salesman. Right? And, there were, and, of course, it's Portland. So they were hipsters. Uh, and so they had, you know, they were very classy in their hats. But that one of them had a ZZ Top beard. Very cool uh, beard. Is, is that Very cool? hip. It was very what? hip. Okay. It was very Portland chic is what that was. Oh. Uh, but he took good care of me, man. They took great care of me at this uh, hat store. I felt pretty good about it. I just picture him like, you know, putting the hat on your head, looking at like having you in front of a mirror and looking at you over your shoulder with his hands on, on your shoulder saying, oh, yeah, you'll be back. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> a, that's not how it happened. They don't actually touch you. But he did. There was a lot of judging. Like, I could just feel there was a lot of head judging. Uh-huh. You know? And, it, uh, you know, it's, it's things like this is what they say. Oh, I don't like the width of the brim there. Got a little bit of flair on the brim on that one. <laughs> like, wow. my head was just not. And it was never that the hat wasn't right for my head. It really was that my head was not right for the hat. <laughs> wow, okay. You know, when you take your hats so seriously. I may be, yeah. I may be at, next time you see me, I may be in some sort of a fedora. Maybe. That's pretty. That's, maybe. Oh, stop. No, that's fantastic. No, you're just jealous. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm going to get you a hat. I'm going to get I'm, you a hat. I'm thrilled. My gateway? Yeah. You got me my gateway, <laughs> gateway hat. Did you do anything this, uh, this week? You catch up on anything? You just sleep? All I've done is sleep. Mm. I just woke up, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I say we just get into it. What do you say? Let's do it. Right. Let's just, let's, let's, you know what? Let's kick yeah, it. Yeah, let's just do it. Kicking it. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? Hey, everybody. It's the next reel. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. We spoil. Movies. I'm Pete Wright. That over that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, and uh, soon I should say soon to be hat wearing Andy Nelson. And <laughs> uh, and we're really really excited to be hanging with you tonight. We are talking about a uh, an old favorite tonight. But before we dig into that, you should get to know us a little bit better. Head over to thenextreel.com, and you can learn all about it and hear all of our past shows. You can subscribe to the show for free in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Uh, if you if you do go over to iTunes, if you are one of the iTunes uh, uh, folks, uh, we sure would appreciate your kind. Uh, five-star reviews helps other people discover the show when they search for things like hey i want to learn about movies 
in the iTunes store. They search for, hey, I want to learn about movies. Hopefully, we'll show up. But, but, but it, get to- yeah, it has to have, it's a, it's a team sport. And then they can hear us talk about hats. That's right. Uh, and uh, so there, you know, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on uh, Google Plus, and of course on the web. So you should hang out with us in any one of those noble places. And uh, and there you have it. And now, Andy, it's time for the Instagram hashtag Pony Prize hashtag Standy versus the People hashtag This could be your lucky day hashtag Million Thousand Dollars. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> How do you do this week? Yeah. Hopefully it's not a million thousand dollars prize. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's, I thought it was just a pony. That's next year's prize. Look oh, at that. Right. We're upping the odds. I love it. That's a lie. There's that's, never any money. That's, uh, we It'll be pretend money. Monopoly <laughs> money, right? <laughs> I don't even have so, that much Monopoly money. That's a lot of Monopoly money. It really is. We need to illegally be printing Monopoly money. <laughs> Which really is just sad. It's counterfeit <laughs> Monopoly money. That is so That's as sad as it gets. It <laughs> really is. Well, it was a good week. I, I think, uh, you know, Stephen Smart uh, picked uh, some pretty solid images from the movie, which is Frank, a fairly recent film. And it took, uh, it took I think it was five images before uh, Cameron L. Ryan came through and was able to figure out uh, that it was Frank indeed. So... Um, yeah, I think the Kraken was out there and uh, in full force. And this was—I uh, mean, it's an indie film, but uh, Michael Fassbender is in it, so it's. Have you not seen? Have you seen indie, it? I guess. It's bananas. You no, know, I, I haven't. It's one of those that's on my list. I definitely want to because it just looks so strange. Oh, it's fantastic! It's it's bananas, but it's uh, we did it as a. Tra- I swear we did it as a trailer, right? I, uh, yeah, I think it was. I think I brought this one up. It it was it was wonderful, and I love those images. They look great. Yeah, they do look great, and it was a it was a fun week to see all the variety of guesses. I mean, there was a lot of guesses all over the place. So, um, very fun to see what people were coming up with. And uh, congratulations, Cameron L. Ryan. She is yet again entered to win the Pony Prize. Dominate. <laughs> Let's do trailers. Um. I will um, hesitate. I'm going to go first. Okay. All right. You go first. (laughs) I'm going to go first because my trailer is, uh, it's almost like uh, the the gods above planned my trailer to be discussed with the film tonight. Oh, yeah. I think so. Don't you? It it just seems to be that way. Yeah. Um, It's a perfect fit. Uh, You know, we're talking about The Exorcist. And what better film to discuss than Kenneth Branagh's new film, Cinderella. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, you know, it really is a perfect pairing for our movie tonight. It really is. It really is. You know, I'll be honest. Tell me. Cinderella, the Disney uh, animated classic. As much as I love Disney and I love Disney's uh, animated films, Cinderella is one of my least favorites. It's, now, uh, why is that? Why do you, why you, know, do you hate on the Cinderella? The story, it's, the story of, uh, in the film I find very tedious. It's, it's done in this like, weird 50-50 split between the story of Cinderella and, you know, Having to uh, you know deal with her horrible stepmother and stepsisters and wants to go meet the prince and all that sort of stuff and it's got the typical uh, you know the story that involves this prince that is like 
man, who is this guy? I don't know. He falls in love with her and you just, you, but you know, she's got the perfect foot and all this stuff. I, I don't know. I don't like any of that. But then the thing that, that really bugs me about the story is the fact that you spend like half of it following the mice and their exploits of helping Cinderella. And you've got the, the annoying cat that her stepmother owns, uh, a cat named Lucifer. That's always a bad idea to name your cat Lucifer. So you see that, see that one coming. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I just, I get so tired of that element of the story and I feel like it's just Tom and Jerry antics for half of it. So this, uh, Kenneth Branagh version proves to be, um, a very similar story to that version. It's got, all of the same elements, including the cutesy little uh, high fiving mice. Yeah, the little high fiving mice, and the mice get turned into the uh, the horse for the carriage and all that. So, yes, I have a lot of concerns about that, but I am I'm hoping that because it's kind of going to be done with modern storytelling style, um, it's got Kenneth Branagh at the helm. I'm hoping that that's a plus. Um, and, you know, it's got people in the cast that I like, including um, uh, uh, the lovely Kate Blanchett as as uh, the uh, wicked stepmother, which I, you know, I mean, that to me is is really solid casting. I think that um, I, I, she does such a great job of being so nice in films um, that... I'm kind of excited to see her be a horrible, mean stepmother. I think that's a, kind of a fun twist. And Helena Bonna Carter, you know, she's she is who she is. And sometimes she annoys me, and sometimes she's great. This might be one that I like her in. Um, but then I'm I'm kind of oddly most excited about Prince Charming, which is strange to me. But it's uh, Richard Madden, uh, aka Rob Stark, mm-hmm. playing uh, playing him. And uh, you know, it's just nice to see him back in there doing something uh, like this. So, um, you know, I don't know what to expect. I know my daughter is excited to see it. I'm going to give this one a shot and hope that it does more for me than the animated version does. I I hear your skepticism and I don't even think my interest raises up to that. <laughs> I really, I mean, I saw the trailer. I was like, this is, it just looks like another you know, interpretation of a, oh my goodness, isn't it fantastic when the hard luck girl gets pretty and gets the boy? Like, that's just not a story that I'm interested in. My daughter has never been interested in it, and I'm just very thankful in that. And and let's not forget that the last Kenneth Branagh thing was Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. Oh, I know. You know, there, there, there were some issues with that. I'm pretending that that one didn't happen, but I'm, I'm, you know, he's done stuff I really enjoy, but I'm really like, ah, come on. I, what I would feel you like give it? What would you give it? Yeah. 50, 50. I, his Shakespeare, his Shakespeare stuff. I like dead again. I liked, uh, you know, Thor. I liked was, Thor. Was, was Thor was good. Um, yeah. but there's a lot of stuff he's done that I just don't like well and even some fair, of his Shakespeare I stuff I didn't, yeah I, I haven't seen all crazy. of it I mean he's done so much. Love Labor's Lost yeah. and you know it was I, not, yeah. I did not like that one Hamlet was good Frankenstein I actually liked Frankenstein don't <laughs> don't be dissing on Frankenstein <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm just yeah saying, I'm just saying I no, have this I, isn't, I'm not hot for this one I'm saying my my expectations are low with this one all I'm saying is that I'm hoping that there's something, there's a glimmer 
of uh, hope that this one will be other than what uh, the other one is. Because, I mean, Drew Barrymore did Ever After, a Cinderella story, um, uh, 10 years ago or so. Yeah. And, and my wife and I actually really enjoyed that one. It was a, it was a much more... I mean, quote unquote, realistic version of the Cinderella story, but it, I liked it a lot better than any well, of the other yeah. Cinderella stories I've seen. All right, that's fair. Yeah, that was yeah, that one was that was cute, and maybe I'm just in a different place now, especially sure. with that horrible Barbie. I can be a computer engineer thing floating around. <laughs> Have you seen that horrible piece of tripe? I, I I saw your post. I never had time to look at it. Well, it's awful. Yeah. My other laptop's a boy. <laughs> it's just like it, it, there, there is so many countless, countless ways that that is not an appropriate message for today. That's all right. I'm saying. Right. Um, so I. Uh, so anyway, good. Well, I. You know, this is this is one of those things where I'm glad that your you are there and your life exists to serve as a warning to others. So you <laughs> can right, see right. this one first. We'll see how it goes come uh, next yeah. March when it opens. Yes. Yeah, well, mine is, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm excited about mine. I, it's, it just gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's about math. Uh, <laughs> and those two things don't usually go together. Math and fun. Mine is X plus Y. Uh, Asa Butterfield and Rafe Spall star in this film uh, about a socially awkward teenage math prodigy. Gains new confidence and friendships when he hits the uh, British squad at the International Mathematics Olympiad. Uh, and I just, I really love the trailer of this. I, the trailer for this, I feel like uh, Acer Butter, Asa Butterfield looks like this is much more of a stretch role for him than Ender's Game. And, and I enjoyed his, his, you know, his part was fun in Ender's Game. But, but this, uh, this looks like a, a meteor role for him. Uh, he's a, a young actor that I'm excited to see grow. And, um, and this looks like one of those, uh, one of those parts that, that um, feels like there are a lot of flaming hoops to jump through uh, to deliver a good performance. I look forward to seeing him try. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, it, it has all the the right pieces in it, and I hope that uh, I hope that he pulls it off. I mean, I, Ace has done a lot of great stuff, you know, so far. I really enjoyed Hugo. Um, you know, that's a real. I had forgotten about Hugo. That was it, that was a terrific performance from him. That was great. Yeah, and and even though I wasn't crazy about the film, I thought he was uh, good in the boy in the striped pajamas, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and then I you know I mean I will say the Nanny McPhee movies we you know as a family they the kids really enjoyed Nanny McPhee Returns so yeah we haven't seen any of those yeah it's it's definitely my kids' age yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> probably not yours but uh, you know I think Ace has got uh, a great uh, presence as a young, a young person. And, uh, this one looks like you're, I think you're right. I mean, it looks like he's kind of, um, branching out a little bit, doing something new. So yeah, excited about this one. And I think it, uh, I think it, it hits in, uh, March, mm-hmm. March, 2015. So it's, uh, you know, we got a couple of months, but it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe this and Cinderella will go head to head. Well, I look forward to that. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right, Andy. Why you do this? Why you do this to me, Petey? Why? Why you do this to me? You're gonna die up there, somewhere between science and superstition. There is another world—the world of darkness. 
inspected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. The Exorcist, Andy. 1973, uh, directed by William Friedkin, written by William Peter Blatty, based on his own novel. Stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, but really, who, why do we care about either of them? This movie is about Linda Blair, and uh, holy smokes, the oh, original, yeah. uh, the original, uh, really uh, sets the tone for many uh, horror films to come. Uh, how, when was the last time you, you've seen this movie before this week? Do you watch, is this a shelf movie for you? Do you watch this often? It's, it's been a shelf movie off and on, but it hasn't been recently. Um, uh, it's probably been three years, three or four years. It's been well longer for me because as you know, I don't, uh, I don't tend to watch the horror Right, all that often, uh, but this one, this one is different. I found myself really into it this time around. Um, I, I really enjoyed my experience with this film, and I, I think it was. Well, we can talk about kind of get into it, but I, I think generally it was because of the way the film um, is it really exists at this nexus between um, a complicated family life, work life. And this event that is horrific, um, but it is not put together, uh, in in my view, as just another serialized horror bit. You know, there there's so much more meat to the relationships uh, and the depth of the relationship that are are you know the the religious protagonists in this film um, end up dealing with their their own belief systems uh, and and I find that really compelling not to mention of course the performances by uh, Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn it, it's amazing by by everyone really I, yeah, I mean yeah, it, truly it, the film really for me taps into I, I mentioned it last week the whole feel of uh, kind of just the the turn that cinema had taken in the seventies, where it had this very um, realistic um, kind of tone through through it, and and Friedkin, uh, you know, he uh, that was one reason that uh, when the studio was talking to um, Blatty about the director in the process of negotiating the deal for the contract to. Um, to buy the rights to the book, um, he said he really wanted Friedkin. And there was a lot of back and forth uh, as far as who was going to direct it. And um, they, uh, you know, they put together a list of you know, directors they agreed on. The studio did not want Friedkin. They wanted a bunch of other people like Stanley Kubrick and, and um, uh, just a, a bunch of other names. I believe they were pushing for Mark Rydell. And, um, 
and he really wanted Friedkin, and, and all the other names passed. They were going to offer it to Mark Rydell, and uh, and he kind of uh, put his foot down and, and said that they couldn't have it, basically, unless it was Friedkin. And so they the studio reluctantly went to Friedkin, which, I mean, coming off the French Connection, I don't know what, what their hesitation would have been, because I thought French Connection, we, we love that movie. We loved that movie. He was at the top of his game. Yeah, absolutely. And and it really uh, has a great sense of that reality in that film. And I think he was able to take Blatty's story and keep that sense of grounding in this story as well. And that's something, I mean, he, Friedkin's even said when he first got the script, when, when um, Blatty uh, first adapted it, he was really trying to pull a lot of cinematic tricks because he was compressing time and all that. And... It just and put a lot of stuff into it that was turning it into something that it shouldn't have been. It was taking it and turning it into something that felt a lot more silly. And so Friedkin really worked with him to bring the tone back from all of that kind of the antics and everything and focus on just the, the essence of the story. And I think this is a... Um, uh, whichever version you watch, the original version or the the version that you've never seen that came out uh, in 2000, uh, either one I think is a just a you know five star horror experience for me. You know, I th- uh, what is the you want to walk through the difference between the differences between the uh, the film and what is substantively different about the 2000 re release. Uh, you know the the 2000 re-release. I mean, there's some little things here and there. Like it it opens. Uh, it actually has a couple shots uh, in Georgetown. A shot of the house. A shot of the um, the um, statue of Mary that gets uh, desecrated later on. Before it cuts to Iraq, um, uh, you know, it has some small changes like that. But uh, there's a lot more of uh, Reagan's medical. Uh, tests when she's going through that and then the um the 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 big change the three big changes that i would say one that everybody talks about is the spider walk and it's a it's it's um i think it's right after they find out that burke uh, mm-hmm. is dead and she comes downstairs um, she crawls down the stairs like a spider and um it freaks everybody out and it's a it's a very terrifying moment and my understanding is that Friedkin cut it at the time because he felt like the effect didn't look right, like you could see the wires and stuff. And um, I it, don't doesn't, know, it doesn't look right. It looks no, weird because she's upside down and backwards too, and that's really kind of horrifying. And yeah, it's and it's a contortionist that it, they hired to actually do that. So I guess you can I just see her. You can see her hands kind of not making contact with the stairs in one of the one of the tracking shots. Yeah, and so. I can see right. why that happened. Yeah, so it's just one of those things. And they cleaned up the wires, obviously, for the yeah. 2000. But it still looks a little funky. But I don't know. It's still creepy. It's still one of those things that you just don't want to look at because it is kind of terrifying. Um, the other uh, two, let's see. The the other one is um, there's a moment between Karis and Marin um, when they're having a kind of a break in the in the exorcism where they're talking and Karis asks him why the demon would be doing this and and Marin kind of explains his reason as to why he thinks the demon would be doing this how it's just it's you know it's just to to take away the sense of humanity i can't remember exactly what it is that Marin says but it's kind of just to make us feel um less hope for the for humanity something like that right um which i think is a very key 
conversation. I, I think it works fine without that, but I do like having that in there because it's like a moment where we get to acknowledge um, the this this um, uh, kind of question that we all have about why is this happening in the first place. And then the ending, I think, is the the last bit, and you've got um, um, a moment where um, uh, where Chris uh, Ellen. Burston's character gives uh, Father Dyer this uh, this um, this pendant that had belonged to uh, Father Karras. and then in the original, then they drive away. In the 2000 version, he then gives it back to her, and so it's an interesting little. I, I'm not quite sure why they cut that because I actually like yeah. him giving it back to her, like keep this talisman sort of moment. And then the scene continues in the. Um, in the uh, 2000 version where um, the um, uh, Kinderman, the police detective who's investigating this, uh, this whole case ends up having this conversation with Dyer outside of the house about movies and kind of, it's like this Casablanca ending. And, and that's an interesting uh, ending, a bit of contention between uh, um, Blatty and Friedkin because Friedkin felt that he ended it where it should have ended. And he, he added this back in because I think people just kind of wanted to have that in there. But but if you hear Blatty talk about it, he felt that the original ending from 73 made people feel like the devil won. And I, I don't understand that, but apparently some people thought that the demon, uh, when it took over Father Karras, is the one who threw Karras out the window, killing him. And I have never seen it that way, and that's not how um, this. That's according to the story. That's not how it goes, but that's um, what people kind of thought and felt that the that the devil won, and they felt that it was a very downer ending. And so, Blatty liked having this other ending between these two guys, just to kind of give it a sense of uplifting uh, feeling again. That you know, the that the the devil didn't necessarily win. Yeah, that feels a little bit weird to me. I mean, I never saw that even in the first, you know, and I, I haven't seen the original in a long time. The, the re-release is all I have. Um, but I've never, I also have never interpreted it that way. Like this was, and, this was a, this was a sacrificial ending. It was very clear yeah. to me that, that uh, Karis, Karis gained brief dominance and sacrificed himself for the good. Exactly. And I, I guess, I mean, maybe it was something of the time because this movie really struck people at the time. It was very uh, intense as far as the reactions that it got out of people um, because of the intense um, uh, just fright that they had of this possession that felt right. so realistic of uh, just, I mean, everything for the medical stuff. I mean, that that test where they stick the needle up into her carotid artery and all that. I mean, there's just some horrifying stuff that caused people serious fright and, and people fainting and throwing up in the theaters and all that sort of stuff that you don't really hear about anymore. Just super horrific. And, um, I mean, even the, the head of Warner Brothers, when Blatty was talking to him, he thought that um, the demon threw the guy out the window. And I think maybe at the time, because people were so invested in this intense uh, film and that they hadn't seen this sort of thing before. Maybe they just kind of missed it because it was so new for the time and it was just too intense for them to catch that. I don't know. But for me, it's always been perfectly clear. 
Yeah, it, it has to me too. I I think uh, you know it's an interesting point when you think about what makes this film scary, and I'm gonna I, I want to pivot a little bit because I, I feel like you introduced it um, to, to talk just a bit about Owen Roisman and, uh, and and the the cinematography of this film, particularly because I think the the style is uh, it's really clean and very simple, right? I mean, there it's it's very practical. Um, and it is that practicality, that simplicity is really showcased. And I think one of the most terrifying sequences in the film, which is the angiography, um, in, in the hospital, it is, it, and I, I don't remember, I, I, you know, this is the, the sequence in the re-release I get, I gather is longer, um, yeah. but they have a, uh, you know, a bona fide, uh, radiographer, right? Is that what they're called? Radiographer? I don't know. Uh, anyway, Angi- geography It's a, it's a, it's a part of part of the field of radiography. Yeah. yeah I don't anyway, know. anyway, so it's a thing, and they have Linda Blair on this uh, on this on the table, and you're right. They stick the needle inside of her, and they they it is so clean and so sterile and shot so practically with no music. The only sound you get is the sound of that sort of hollow room. It's all natural light in the you know ho- shot with hospital light. Uh, and when they stick the needle in, and the blood comes shooting out, it shoots out six feet from her <laughs> neck, right? And and that sequence is. For me, the most difficult sequence to watch. It's the sequence that that causes me to to get a little lightheaded. Like it's it's really horrifying. And that that's I'm not the only person I know who feels that way about this movie. Everything else you can kind of you can kind of move through, but that's the part that that feels like it touches home the most. It is a real you know little girl sitting on this thing, and her mother is on the other side of the observation glass, not even in the room with her, watching this go through her, watching the medical system inflict horror upon her. Uh, to attempt to discover what's wrong with her, and we already know that what's wrong with her cannot be satisfied by a medical um, intervention at this point. And I think that is uh, is such a strong point in the right in the middle of the film that that um, you know it's it's horrible. Well, I mean, it's all about beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's this story about this mother who has to um, kind of just she doesn't have any experience in handling this. So she has to find faith in, in various people that she can, you know, quote unquote count on to fix her little girl. And as a person who's not necessarily one of faith, you know, she's initially puts her faith in all these doctors and it just gets more and more horrifying as it goes on. And it's very frightening, the stuff that they do to this little girl in the hopes of finding this, you know, whether it's a brain lesion or whatever it is and i i think you're absolutely right the way that Roisman and uh, and Friedkin chose to to shoot these scenes it's it's so sterile and um unrelenting in the way that it's set up and we don't get to cut away when that needle goes into the neck and all that sort of stuff it's it's really brutal even though it's all uh, you know obviously Hollywood tricks to make it look that way, but it it just doesn't feel like there's any tricks going on. It feels like we're watching this this horrible um, test done on this little girl, and it's it's just frightening. It it is. It's it's really frightening, and I think that style that you know he sets that style, and it carries through the other major set pieces. Certainly in her room, uh, you know, which is a, a major set piece for the for the film. That what they what they capture in the room is is um, 
you know, it, it's a, it's a base kind of little girl's room and it's not even a terribly full room because it's not there, you know, they're, they're on location, right? They're shooting a film. Uh, and so that's not their home. It's their, it's like a temporary home. And, and it really feels kind of, kind of like, like that, like they're, they're squatting in somebody else's residence. Um, but once you get in that room and things start flying around, um, you know, it, it, it feels like we're in it to me. It feels really constrained and really, um, uh, natural. Well, and you know, there's a great balance of the uh, of the look and uh, and and even the sound of this film that Friedkin oh, yeah. is really pushing for with Roisman and then also his uh, team of of sound engineers. But the um, the idea of what he uh, wanted was to find this balance, it, it, almost like this constant yin yang of of really bright scenes and then really dark scenes and really loud scenes and really soft scenes. And he was always looking for that. And I think you'll see that because you'll have these really bright scenes like all of the stuff in the medical lab and even some of the scenes um, during the exorcism. But then you also balance that with these just really dark scenes like this beautiful scene where uh, where Karis is sitting in a bar talking to um, another of the uh, the priests, uh, like the, the head of the university, I think, about how he's losing his faith. And it's this, you know, this amazing Gordon Willis godfather, dark, chiaroscuro sort of lighting. Mm -hmm. And you've just got these faces kind of coming out of the shadows. And it's just, it's beautiful and it's haunting and it's frightening. And and there's that great, there's a great balance in the film of the different lighting uh, styles going on. But I, I find it really interesting how they... Uh, for the most part, seem to keep the the horrific stuff to be the brighter stuff. Um, you know, that's yeah. that's the stuff that's it, it's like they're not letting it hide in the shadows. They're really kind of keeping it um, out, exposed. And by by exposing it, uh, I think that that lends to the horror because it um, it forces us to to join in this psychological battle of of good and evil that they're facing. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of lighting, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just call attention to the fact that we've already had talked quite favorably about Roisman's work in Network. Uh, and I couldn't help and but French think— And French Connection. Well, and French Connection, obviously, which came right before this uh, uh, for him. But but I couldn't help but think of the masterful use of light and, and the contrast of light, um, you know, in, in Network as well, which I think is is another um, example of, of really playing with the brights and the darks. And, and there you get the bright, bright studio lights in Network and, and, and you know, the biggest rants happen under those studio lights and then the darkness and the green light of the conference room and so uh, you know he just clearly is a is a cinematographer that that has a real flair for um for manipulating light uh and doing great things with natural light yeah so yeah absolutely he does a great job working in this with uh, uh with friedkin yeah uh, makeup too, I think is, you know, there's a sort of a parallel angle on makeup here and, and it, it, particularly for Linda Blair, um, her makeup as she descends into the, the more possessed role, uh, is it, I remember it as much more garish than it is. You yeah. know, my memory of it is really horrible, but really it's, it's very natural. Like you see 
under this little girl, or under this horrific devil kind of, you know, scarred face, you see the little girl underneath there. And I think that's a, um, you know, that's a, a an extremely intentional, um, uh, you know, uh, choice, right? To to make her, uh, you know, between William Farley and Dick Smith, um, Dick Smith in particular, to make her look like a, uh, you know, a little girl, a 12-year-old girl who is, you know, and not put just a horrible mask on her that makes it look, you know, like she's not who she is anymore. I think it, it, it allows you to kind of see the human inside that she's just injured. She is fundamentally, de- you know, sort of degraded, but she's still herself in there. And it, I think it further builds that emotional connection. And in contrast, the, the incredible eerie transformation of Max von Sydow um, to, from young Max von Sydow at this, this period in the early seventies to, you know, Max von Sydow old, that was yeah. crazy. Yeah. He, I, I don't think I ever realized how much makeup they had applied to him uh, because he's just one of those actors who's always seemed just he's always been that old. old he's always that old guy yeah but uh he's yeah they i mean they aged him like 30 or 40 years to uh to be in his uh like 70s is I, what they wanted the character to be i just can't like really wrap your head around that like imagine imagine what it's like to be max von Sydow, right i know to like be what was the movie we liked so much with the the Spanish with the bug you want? Intacto. Intacto. Okay, so imagine you're Intacto Max von Sydow, and mm-hmm. you go back and you watch The Exorcist Max von Sydow. What are you saying? Yeah. You're saying like, how did they know? Right. How right. did they know that this would be me? That was so <laughs> good. Yeah, they do a great job. Uh, Dick Smith uh, really just uh, excelled at. Uh, the makeup effects in this, and Max uh, just—I mean—he really pulls it off playing this this old old priest. And he was, uh, he was born to be old. That guy yeah. was born to be old. Everything between then and old was just farce. Now, it, I'm, yeah. <laughs> but he's, um, yeah, it it, uh, it works really well, and and uh, and like you were saying with uh, with um, uh, the little girl with Linda Blair, also. I mean. It always was done in kind of that realistic style. And if you look at some of the makeup tests that they had done, I mean, they had really done some tests of much more garish, over-the-top makeup. And uh, again, going back to this whole idea of this this realism with the story, um, Friedkin was really trying to find a way to make it much more realistic. And they tapped into this idea of let's make it look like her wounds are all kind of self-inflicted. So mm-hmm. it's like scratches on her face that... You know, maybe some gangrene is starting to set in and stuff like that because nothing's getting treated, and and uh, and so it, it, as time progresses, it just she gets worse and worse, and and uh, I mean, she just is horrifying. And that balanced with uh, Max's makeup, I mean, it just it, to me, it's just uh, you know a, a stellar example of really solid makeup effects in in cinema where you've got great kind of the horror makeup effects, but you also get great age makeup. And I think it's an incredible balance between the two. It really is. The effects that you don't even know are effects. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was it, it was really artfully done. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Ellen Burstyn and, and um, her role as mom, Chris uh, 
Yeah, another another solid uh, mother role, um, you know, uh, that leads into uh, the uh, the one we talked about last week. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Right. She is a she's a famous actress. We don't get a whole lot of context about her career other than the fact that she's famous. And and there are some nice little moments in here when the when the detective asks for her autograph, you know, during the investigation and uh, of of the death of the other uh, priest. It, it, you know, it's a, it, there are these wonderful little hints that she's really quite famous, but um, otherwise, you know, I, my impression of her portrayal of Chris McNeil is that. She uh, is the anchor of The Exorcist as a film about a mother-daughter story. Yeah, right. This is this is a this is a story about a relationship between a mother-daughter and another protective mother trying to sort of that that mama bear trying to protect her daughter and lead her back into the light. And that's that's the that provides the substance that makes this film more interesting than just a run-of-the-mill horror movie. Yeah, it really is the soul of the film. You know, you get this this just very hard story about this mother uh, dealing with this situation that she just doesn't understand. And she, I mean, I can't imagine uh, the the pain for any parent in a situation where your your kid is uh, having an issue and you can't do anything about it. It's right. like the most the most helpless feeling you can have as a parent because. You know, your role is to always kind of be there and fix things for your kid, and and you know, yes, you have to. There's uh, there's limits that you can can uh, do, but uh, you know, hopefully, medical science can take care of most of the other problems that could arise. Clearly, she's not in that situation, as uh, you know. I mean, <laughs> things just clearly are, uh, as we all know, watching the film not in in the world of medical science for her. And when she finally has to come to Father Karras um, in the last uh, part of the film and ask about the exorcism, I mean, the pain that you see in her as a person is just, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, she's, she's completely broken and really has nowhere else to turn to. And uh, just that conversation that she has with Karras as they're walking in uh you know across the the uh, Georgetown University campus it's a it's it's a very heartbreaking scene and uh, but it also has that almost kind of like that desperate plea that she's got of uh, you know i she's at this point going to do anything to to try to find a way to get her girl back right you know it was a uh, it, it, i i agree with you i think that that uh, you know that that conversation uh, was particularly strong, and it was when she she you can see her lose like she keeps a, a tenuous grip on control of her emotions at, during that mm-hmm. conversation until he says you, you know she needs to see a psychiatrist. He says I've seen all the psychiatrists, I've seen all the mm-hmm. psychiatrists, and they told me to come to you. Now you're telling me to go back to them, and she just sort of loses it. And um, uh, you know I I love that moment where you know you can see her finding faith just because she's out of she's running out of hope. Yeah. Right? She yeah. she has to put faith in this stuff she doesn't understand and has never given thought to. Uh and she plays that really really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a broken mom and and it just all of the moments like uh, there's a moment later when she comes back in uh as as Karis has kind of been 
kicked out of the room because uh, the demon was getting to him, and and Marin could tell that that um, he was kind of breaking, and so he asked asked Father Karras to step out, and you've got that great moment where she comes uh, into the into the room and sees him there and is asking him some questions about you know, how it's going and is if her daughter's going to make it and everything. And it's just, you know, it's simple. She's always trying to be the good hostess, you know, can I get you a drink, all that sort of stuff. But it's all that um, that kind of desperation of this mother who just doesn't know what to do anymore and and is just trying to get by by just doing these things just to so she doesn't lose her mind. And, um, and I, I particularly love that moment because her question actually is the, um, instigation for Father Karras when she says, is, is, is she going to die? And you've got that great shot of Father Karras as he kind of looks back up to the room and it's just like, no. no. And then you see him climb the stairs and go back up into the room to, to, uh, take on the, the uh, demon one last time. Once you see the end of the film, I, I feel like you, you, you know, hindsight is sets in and, and to me that no is, you know, I I have a plan. Is that how you hear it? Yeah. I don't I don't see it as I have a plan, but it's 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 that sense for me where it's like I have I've found my faith again. I feel like I can confront this demon yeah. now and not let it break me and do whatever it takes. Yeah, right. Which he does. I mean, it's it, yeah. the most, you know, the 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 biggest step that anyone performing an exorcism could take, which is taking the demon into himself and then killing himself. He, um, uh, roles played by Jason Miller, who's a fantastic, um, obviously a fantastic actor and a, um, Pulitzer prize winning dramatist. He's a playwright and, uh, as well. And, um, uh, really quite more prime, more primarily as a yeah. playwright, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's just a fantastic and, and sort of subdued portrayal of this, this you know, a priest who was originally a priest uh, who was sent through uh, uh, medical school by the cloth. Uh, and, I, you know, I, the way I read it, he is – he found his sort of crisis of faith – uh, as a result of his ongoing kind of education and and uh, and then is is sort of pushed uh, at the death of his mother uh, and, and so it's a, a really interesting kind of parallel story for the first half of the film where we where we kind of learn about father Karras um, and and see his his relationships sort of unfold and and unravel uh, and and get to see his pain in a whole different way than the pain we're experiencing with the McNeil family. Uh, what's your take on, on Jason? It's uh it's a really, I mean, it's an, it's a, I think an integral part of the story is having this, this balance between, um, you know, Chris McNeil trying to figure out what's wrong with her daughter. And you, you're always kind of coming back to this priest and his crisis of faith and just trying to figure out, you know, what, what to do with his uh, his own path that he's taken, and it's it's really interesting because you're not quite sure uh, as the film progresses who the titular uh, exorcist is going to be. Right? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be because we were introduced first to Father Marin, who finds this uh, um, you know all these interesting puzzle pieces about the demon Pazuzu in this uh, dig in Iraq at the beginning of the film 
but then we come back to uh, uh, you know we don't see him for so long. Um, he's talked about later as as the exorcist coming in, and uh, but Father Karras is the one that we end up spending more time with as far as um, uh, you know the priests go, and I, you know his character is for me it's it's really that integral integral um, change character that we need to have in the story. That kind of reflects the 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 arc, the character arc, that the the growing that our character needs to do, um, and and he's the one who changes. And through this uh, crisis of faith that he's having, um, uh, we the audience get to kind of go along uh, for the ride with him as he's struggling with his beliefs and he's struggling with um, you know the the loss of his mother and everything going on in his life. And it's it, it's because of this situation with with the demon that is in this girl and father Marin, who's an amazingly religious figure. I mean, as evil as Pazuzu is, um, Marin is good. You know, he reflects the goodness in things right. and, and, and Karis is just struggling with all that. And the demon is constantly toying with him and, and he does lose his faith and he's kicked out of the room. And it's not until that conversation with, with Chris that he's able to find that again and go back up to the room. And that's when he really changes and grows as a character. And I think that that is what makes that last moment so strong because when he finds father Marin has had a heart attack in the room, um, he is able to uh, to step up and take on the demon. Finally, now he's grown, and we, as as the audience, get to experience that growth with him as he finally confronts the demon, takes him head on, and is able to extract him from the girl, and then uh, you know sacrifice himself. Yeah, it really is a um, a wonderful sort of case study of the hero's journey. You know, right? Yeah, Particularly absolutely. in that last sequence, his the mentor, you know, his mentor is killed and he steps up through sort of the, the resurrection and he, uh, you know, he is able to uh, sacrifice himself with, you know, the elixir, so to speak, and of, of the exorcism. Uh, yeah. It's it, He plays it just wonderfully. I, I, you know, I forgot to mention the, the Pulitzer Prize that he won was for a, a play called The Championship Season, uh, and the original Broadway cast featured Richard Dysart. That's right. Which we, uh, if you haven't heard our Richard Dysart interview, uh, you should uh, you should check it out on the website. We'll put a link in there. It's really good too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Linda Blair. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Bananas. I I can't believe that this is a twelve year old girl doing all of this stuff. This is uh, Friedkin. Um, I would I would kid her into doing things on screen that had never been asked of a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's you know he's, he's kind a, of a strange guy. He's a terrifying director. I mean, there are stories on set about like to um, to get. Um, well, I mean, the, he he refrigerated the room and made yeah. it incredibly cold. I mean, down to like negative thirty or forty degrees that they would be working in, and all the crew would be bundled up in all their their winter parkas and everything. And then our poor actors are in there, you know, just, just acting clothes, with yeah. their their robes on. And um, 
and it was just incredibly hard on the actors. And they could only film for so long before all the lights would warm up the room too much, and they'd have and and they wouldn't see the breath anymore, so they'd have to stop and <laughs> refrigerate the room again. They would do that. Um, Ellen Burstyn was on this this um, you know rig for a stunt, and and when they yanked her. Um, it pulled uh, so hard that she flew backward and landed on her coccyx and and broke it. Uh, well, at least in one report. And um, and the shot that you see in the film when she uh, lands and screams is the shot where she did that. And uh, she was reportedly very upset with with uh, Friedkin that he used that shot. Likewise, um, Linda Blair is in this rig that when she when her body is 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 smacking up and down in the bed. She's in this in this rig that is pulling her up and down and, and all this. And the, the harnesses were slipping. They weren't tied on tight enough. And so it was actually digging into her skin as it was yanking her backward and forward. And she's screaming like, please stop, please make it stop. And that was actually her screaming because she was in so much pain. <laughs> and just uh, and he sh- and, and, and he was he was trying to get uh, Jason Miller to uh, to do something uh, to kind of be more shaken. And he had a secret gun hidden on set that he shot next to the actor to jolt him, <laughs> to shock him into uh, the performance that he wanted. I mean, he's a crazy director, and everybody acknowledges it. And, and he pushes people. And then, you know, coming after this, you get Sorcerer, where he almost kills the actors driving across this bridge. So, I mean, he's an, a director who really would push his actors uh, beyond the point where... Um, a director probably should for something as, as I guess you could say, benign as a movie. It's not something that should lead to uh, torment and pain and <laughs> you know, death and injury and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty horrifying. He, but uh, he goes he goes full Shia. He 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 is yeah. He has crossed the Shia <laughs> threshold. Crossed the Shia he really threshold. Has. Really has, but Linda. I mean, you know, the thing that blows me away with her is is people would come up to her, like the crew, and saying, "How do you feel about saying all these things that you're saying and doing these things you're doing?" And she's like, "Oh, I'm not doing them. Reagan is doing. It. Reagan is saying that." And as a as a an actress who was just uh, you know clearly um, doing some horrific things, and, and but as very young, she was really connected to this idea of. I'm an actress, but and and I'm not doing any of this. This is all part of the character, and that's what really blows me away. Is that is that um, she was in this mental space where she was able to say and do these things, and it didn't affect her. Because I tell you, I mean, I would be horrified to ever. I, I always think about this watching child performances. Like, what kind of parent lets their kid do yeah. this? Yeah, you Because exactly. I'd be horrified if, if my daughter was uh, was performing in a role like this. She uh, There's a, a pretty good interview with her on the uh, the extra features uh, in the iTunes download where, uh, you know, she talks about, she you know, she the way she frames it is that, uh, you know, it was purely mechanical. Like she didn't understand some of the sexual stuff. She didn't understand, you know, she heard a lot of the language, but she didn't really, um, you know, she didn't really understand kind of what those things were. She was just told to do them by Friedkin and she did them. And that's the way she sort of uh, compartmentalizes it now. <laughs> And yeah, I, sort of the way I have to too, because it's a it's a phenomenally entertaining movie. As soon as I take off that hat and think about this as a you know she was I think thirteen at the time, um, that uh, uh, it is uh, it becomes no longer appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just bananas what they got her to do. 
what it really they asked is. her to do. Uh, and, and so it takes back to this this quote of Friedkin. I would kid her, you know, that they had a really strong relationship on scene and that he would kid her or tease her into doing these things. And to hear him talk in particular about the crucifix sequence, uh, you know, asking her to do with the crucifix what, you know, what she did not know what was going on with the crucifix, um, you know, was was one of those things. And hearing him tell that story, well, I just said, okay, now you're going to have to put it there. It just sounded so creepy. It was <laughs> not right. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely disturbing. Yeah. It really is. But but again, she does it all so well. That's the and problem. That's the thing, that's, yeah, that's the thing that freaks me out. It's like, uh, it's like I okay. I'm glad that she didn't understand what she's doing, but man, she sure seems like she knows what's going on, and it creeps me out. But you know, I mean, she won a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. She was nominated for an Oscar for this. Yeah. Uh, I you know I you know clearly she had some good understanding of this and, and was able to tap into. Uh, Something horrific, but you know it's funny because you hear like we talked about Stand by Me not that long ago, and how uh, Rob Reiner had a hard time finding the right sort of person to play Teddy um, because none of the kids had that darkness in them. And here we come watching Linda Blair play this this character that ends up having a lot of this darkness in her. But man, you you listen to her talk and you you hear about her childhood and all that. It's like. She had like the perfect life. Where yeah. was that darkness? What right. was she pulling it from? I have no idea, but she sure tapped into it. Yeah. You know, it's it's so funny too. Like I, looking at just sort of where her career went, um, you know, wow. I, I, looking at this performance, you mm-hmm. you would think that. And, and this was an interesting bit of controversy. I'm interested in your take on this. I This didn't seem like such a big deal to me, right? But the she did the film and was on track to, uh, you know, there, there was talk that she was on track to be, uh, to win an Oscar for this film. Mm-hmm. And um, in the, it was uncredited in the the uh, in the credits in the initial release, there was an uncredited performance of the demon by uh, the famous uh, radio personality Mercedes McCambridge. Uh, they had uh, ended up overdubbing the demon sequences uh, with Mercedes' voice, mm-hmm. and when that came out. Uh, it is said she, you know, her chances for that Oscar went away. Is that how you understand it? Am I missing something? Uh, you know, it's it's always such a uh, a game trying to figure out what people were thinking and why they were thinking it and everything. And uh, you know, there's there certainly is a possibility that that's the reason. Um, you know, I I don't know. I always think you know uh, they seem to shy away from kids anyway. I mean. Every now and then you'll get the random kid that they give an award to, but often the award is getting a nomination. For yeah, the right, kids, right. You know? And so I don't know. I, I have a hard time you know, saying if that's the reason or not. I didn't find anything that really said it one way or another, and that's one of those you know, rumor sorts of things anyway. It's like, yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you end up proving that? But it's, you know, if it's out there, it certainly is something to, um, uh, to look at as far as something that could have happened. So from, from this film... She, uh, she, you know, she's got a, a number of credits, but they never quite, uh, they never quite took off. Yeah, her career uh, trajectory, I think, 
this is one of those things where it, it can really get tainted by a great young performance. Yeah. Well, it, you know, you compare it to Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. right? You have this extremely strong uh, set of performances as a young actress. And, and then what? You know, there's this inciting event and suddenly things change. And, and, and I, I think, you know, Linda Blair's case, it, it may have been the cocaine when she was 18. Um, but from there, she went one way and Jodie Foster went the other. Yeah. You know, I, it, there's, it's a direct parallel for me watching these two young actresses, both incredibly talented on screen, incredibly talented. Uh, and I just, I look at Linda Blair and I'm just really sad because her, you know, her performances just did not, yeah. Yeah, she was sad. never able to, she was never able to kind of jumpstart her career again. And, you know, she did end up having to do a whole bunch of um, low-end horror flicks is like, where she like kind what? of ended like up. Calendar Girl, uh, Cop or Killer? The Bambi Bamba uh, Neck story? Yeah. Is that kind uh, of what you're talking about? Well, I, I was talking even uh, even earlier, like in the eighties, like you know, <laughs> like Hell Night, Chain yeah. Heat, Night Ruckus. Patrol, Savage Streets, Terror in the Isles. <laughs> she ended yeah. up in just a string of really. She did really, do Red Heat. She did do Red Heat. <laughs> yeah, there is that it's a women in prison film? Yeah, that's a whole category, apparently. And uh, of course, then there, then there's all the Exorcist spoofs that she ended up kind of being a part of. Like Repossessed was one uh, that was the Leslie Nielsen yeah. uh, spoof of the Exorcist that uh, Linda Blair was in, and and uh, it, just the whole idea of, of of her being this girl that uh, uh, she gets possessed again, you know, and it's just like meh, that, and um, even in. Um, uh, gosh, what was it? There was another bit that she popped up in. It was kind of just a little spoof of it. I can't remember if it was Scream or something like that. But yeah, yeah, she was uncredited in Scream. She was one of the reporters. Mm, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Any case, sad story, but incredible performance. One for the ages in, in The Exorcist. Truly. Yeah. Truly. Going, going back to Mercedes McCambridge real quick, mm-hmm. that's another really interesting story. The... Um, the way that, uh, that ties directly into Friedkin and his madness, um, he found he he did. They did initially try to do audio um, uh, with Linda jiggering of Linda yeah. and, and moder- moder- um, modulate her voice to try finding something that was really horrific and and scary. But he never could find something. It just sounded kind of silly, and and so. And this, of course, was after weeks of working on it. And so he was trying to find, he said, some voice that didn't sound like a man's voice because he didn't want it to just sound like a man. He thought that would sound weird coming out of her. Um, and he didn't want a woman's voice. He wanted a voice that was almost a blend of man-woman. And McCambridge has kind of this raspy voice that works really well. And so he, that's what made him think of her. And, and uh, they brought her on board to do the voice for, um, for the demon and uh, but that wasn't good enough for Friedkin. He strapped her to a chair. He made her. She he she had quit smoking. He made her start smoking again, and she was she was smoking like three packs a day while they were doing the voice recordings to get that scratchiness of her voice. He had her drinking shots of whiskey constantly, just you know straight whiskey to kind of help with that voice. 
and uh, it just like, oh it, it, it just like this is what he put her through in order to get the performance that he wanted. I'm like, man, do you really need to go to that length to do it? But uh, you know, I you know, I guess it worked. But at the same time, it's. Uh, you know, strapped to a chair. Oh, and he, she was like, he was making her swallow raw eggs. It's just like all this horrible <laughs> stuff. Oh man, it's like you're gonna have uh, this, this chain-smoking drunk actress strapped to a chair reading these lines. I, I don't know, man, but uh, he got the performance he, got he wanted. The performance. But... That's that's the that's that's <laughs> unfortunately the end justified the means. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Scary to say, but very yeah. scary. Uh, anybody else uh, jump out at you that you want to talk about? Uh, I absolutely think we should talk Lee J. Cobb, who I oh, think is yep. is great as Kinderman. Yeah, you're right. He, um, we haven't talked about him on the show before, but he certainly is a man who's been in a lot of stuff. I mean, he's a very busy man. I don't think yeah. we've talked about him before. I don't we? think so. I, we've we've fantasized about talking about him because we've talked about doing Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, right. Exactly. And um, and he's in the uh, he's in the Flint series. I'd love to talk about right. the two Flint movies one day because I just love those ones. <laughs> um, and uh, he's just he is an actor who um, is just so great in everything. I mean, what on the waterfront? Another amazing yeah. performance from him. And and if you look at on the waterfront, it's such a different performance than what he gives here for Kinderman. He's so gentle and just kind of this this. Uh, this almost like this this kind little papa bear detective who just is is so kind and and uh you know they they kind of um say he it's almost like this precursor to Columbo and and Blatty actually he actually thinks that they stole the the Columbo uh you know some of the Columbo ticks from this performance and you know he said he's never had proof of it or anything like that but you can certainly see it he's kind of this he plays to be forgetful and everything and he's just kind of the way that he acts about everything i i love lee j cobb in this uh i think his role as kinderman as this as this police officer who's i mean he's really kind of trapped in this in this case of trying to solve this death of burke the the director um and it's clearly a case where he's way in over his head. And I think at the end, it's an interesting um, kind of moment there where it's just like he, he, it's like he doesn't know where to go with this case because it's so over his head as far as dealing with the demons and, and uh, exorcisms and all this. And, and I like the way he plays it as this guy who's just trying to figure out something that's not something he'll be able to figure out through legal or through the through the law, you know. Yeah, structurally, I love the way they play this part because it, it – it makes the the law non-threatening, right? He plays yeah, it sort it's of great. It, it's innocuous, right? It, it's it's a part that you know there are these mechanics that are going on elsewhere, and he is investigating this the, a serious, you know, death, right? It, it's a serious case, but he is, you know, he's not he's not an obstacle uh, because the obstacle of the possession and getting the church to buy in and doing you know, doing the exorcism is obstacle enough. And I think that is, um, I think that works really, really well. It allows us to just like the guy and, and not be cynical of, of kind of the role of the law in film, which is so often, you know, as, as an obstacle to some other larger story. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's solid. He, he really, really uh, is very gentle. His his sequence with with uh, Burston, you know, is a, you know I mentioned that the uh, the autograph scene, but but that whole conversation, you know, I couldn't help but thinking, I, I wonder how he's playing this because when I watch him in it, uh, I get the feeling that he's really genuinely processing with her, you know, like he's saying things like, the only way I can figure it is that this was done by a large man, you know, not obviously not your daughter, but your daughter was in there alone. How could she possibly have done that? You know, that's the Columbo tick. Yeah. Uh, but with Columbo, you know, he's processing something on a different level. And with, with Lee J Cobb's portrayal here, I, I don't feel like it's, I, I'm, I don't get that cynical vibe. Maybe I'm yeah. alone. Well, no, I, I agree. I, I don't either. And that scene, I think, is is also another of my many favorites in this film because you have this this man, this this um, who's. It's like he is trying to figure this out, and he kind of. It's almost like he latches onto the idea that Reagan is the only one here. She's the only one who could potentially have done this. But I'm not going to talk about that because one, it it seems unrealistic. But two, um, you know, I, I don't. I'm here with the mother, and I don't want to freak her out about all this. But then Chris is in this conversation at the same time, and she's. You can clearly see on her face that she's processing the same thing. Reagan right. is the only one here. She's the only one who could have done it. Oh my God, my daughter killed Burke. Right. And 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 all of that is this amazing subtext going on in the scene that none of it gets said and it's just it's beautifully portrayed and beautifully shot that's another uh, wonderful owen roisman moment where you've got this this beautiful uh, these subtle pushes in these dollies into each character as they're as they're each talking going up to kind of this discovery and and kind of this this moment of figuring things out only to start uh retracting and pulling back as they kind of change direction and 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 say, well, you know, it can't be that, and all that, and, and the camera kind of pulls back, and it's it's this beautiful way to kind of build that tension, and then and you can just kind of feel it getting tense, and then feel it relaxing a little bit, and it's a it's a very strong way to tell that scene. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's a, it is lovely. Uh, who else? You know, something that I've never known is that um, William Peter Blatty, uh, who wrote this, I never knew he was a, uh, a comedy guy. And yeah. this was kind of like the strange little sidestep for him because he was uh, struggling trying to find uh, work because the comedy uh, world that he had been working in um, was kind of drying up. People weren't tapping into that sort of comedy um, in the early 70s. And... Um, and so it was just one of those things, uh, late sixties, early seventies, I guess. And, and he turned to this and, and, you know, he was fascinated by this thing and he kind of, uh, kind of got, uh, you know, really set on telling this story. And so it was a big turn for him. So I had no idea that he was this, this guy that, um, uh, was, you know, behind like a shot in the dark and, uh, and, uh, some of these other, uh, you know, shot in the dark, John Goldfarb, please come home. Promise for anything. What did you do in the war, Daddy? And uh, Gun, the uh, the Peter Gun uh, movie and stuff. It's uh, that uh, the Blake Edwards did. So right. it's it's really funny to me that uh, he ended up being the guy who uh, who tapped into the, his dark side to tell this story. 
Well, you know, it's a it's a funny um, it's a funny case. There's an the, you know watching this uh, the you know his his I guess uh, an old teacher of his, uh, yeah. and it was who was also a, a, a priest. Uh, he had written to this this uh, priest to get some information on the nineteen ninety four or nineteen forty nine exorcism of Roland Doe, which is which is um, you know essentially the story of the exorcist. And and so um, when you think about this, like you think about here's this comic writer looking for something to kind of sink his teeth into, and he finds this case that ha- that is documented and that there is a there is a witness who can talk. Um, you know that that becomes the the story of a lifetime. You know, I mean, it's almost as as much of a fictional account of a of you know something of of dubious belief. Uh, it, it's almost more of a, a journalistic endeavor for him um, to to meticulously research the stories of the the story of this true exorcism of a twelve twelve year old girl, uh, and you know her mother's you know her mother's fight. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I, I think it's a it, it it makes the movie more interesting knowing that um, uh, to me. You know, it makes it, it you know less of a of a knockoff horror film and more of a yeah more of a, a tale. Well, and it, that's something else that really I, I think works so well for this film is this sense of um, an honest portrayal, uh, kind of this this religious portrayal of looking at this world of exorcism and. And I mean, they even say, you know, it never happens anymore. And when you first, uh, when she first asked uh, Father Karras about it, he's like, "Well, you're going to have to jump into a time machine and go back to the 1600s. They just right. don't do them anymore." And they look at all of this in, in this such a, a realistic way about this idea of exorcisms being—it's—it's it's not really something that that uh, you know society sees as normal. And they look at—they treat it in the film as this. It's it's this very rare thing that that happens because of the this situation is so rare and frightening, um, and the fact that he did investigate in this this uh, exorcism from the forties and and really kind of pulled a lot of the realities from that case to put into this, um, uh, and and even like you mentioned his his teacher this this priest that taught him, um, who I believe is actually one of the priests end up in the film. Um, he told him, I'm not going to help you unless you really tell it like it is and, and just be really honest and truthful about it. And I think that comes across incredibly well. And that is just this other element that just keeps this strength in the film that uh, I, I don't think will ever make it uh, dated because it just it has this um, this very honest look at the uh, uh this darkness in the world and how uh you know the 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 holy side of things can come to kind of help it it is it, it makes it such an interesting twist too that it's the it is the religious establishment that is uh circumspect uh, yeah and and you bring up that that sequence again in the park uh you know well it it just doesn't happen anymore miss mcneil since when since we learned about mental illness about paranoia dual personality all the things they taught me at harvard uh, you know that it was the 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 religious establishment that was circumspect and it was the medical establishment that said you know you should probably go talk to a priest uh, mm-hmm. it it makes for you know an even more interesting twist in the story yeah, well, and I love how they're all like, "Yeah, you should talk to it because you know, try an exorcism." Yeah, it's not that it works because of the reasons they think it exactly. does. Exactly. 
you know it's it's you know it's, it's mental it's psychological game and it's it's just brilliant i think all of those elements are really brilliant to to make this uh, into something that feels incredibly real. Because they're all anchored in reality and not the supernatural, even though fundamentally we're dealing with the supernatural. That's exactly. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anybody else? Any any other highlight? We talked about cinematography. We, talked, we, we should talk uh, about sound and music. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the, the, the sound design in this... Um, is uh, I mean I mentioned how Friedkin wanted to go from loud to soft and loud to soft, and you got these amazing um, moments of quiet that are punctuated all of a sudden by an incredible, like you've got the screaming coming from upstairs, or you've got you know dogs fighting or whatever it is. And you know one of my favorites is you've got this really fascinating dream sequence when uh, Father Karras is having this dream and these amazing images of his mother and this pendant falling. And, you know, the little flashes of the devil and all that sort of stuff. And um, it's silent. There's really nothing other than kind of his, his breathing while he's sleeping. Um, and then what, what this, the loud punctuation to that is when the pendant hits the ground, you get Reagan just screaming at the top of her lungs because of something that's happening. And the way that they play the, the sound throughout this is, is just really, it's solid. Absolutely agree. Uh, and, and again, the, you know, when you go to the, the quiet sequences, like again, the hospital is just so natural and very, very clear, um, that, that it, it adds to just that grounding of the entire film. It's really solid. The music is iconic. Yeah. Although the, uh, mostly because, uh, not because of the composer, but really it's just because of tubular bells, I think. Exactly. Uh, which which I think has taken on really only the role of exorcist in history. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. It's a strange track. Have you ever listened to Tubular Bells outside of the movie? I have not. It, um, you know, Mike Oldfield, who wrote it, um, it's, it's, it's one of those weird tracks that, uh, I mean, he wrote right around the time, and uh, it's a... Um, I don't even know what I'd call it. It, it. I mean, it's definitely kind of a contemporary classical sort of stuff, but it, um, it, 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 like he has talking going on through it. It's really long. It's like an incredibly, incredibly long track, um, like 20 some minutes or something like that. Um, yeah, 25, there's two tracks on the record. I'm looking at it now. The where, first... So where does, where does the part that we hear come in? Is that like the beginning? Yeah, that's like the the main part, okay. uh, kind of the opening part of it, um, and uh, then and uh, let's see what it says here. Oldfield plays all the instruments himself, including such oddities as the farfisa organ, the lowry organ, and the flageolet. Um, yeah, the, the familiar. I know the familiar eerie opening made famous by its use in the exorcist starts the album off slowly as each instrument acoustically wriggles its way into the current noise that is heard until there's a grand unison of eccentric sounds that wildly excites the ears. Um, yeah. And then the tempos kind of change throughout. Um, you get mandolins and Spanish guitars that join and uh, all these bells that come in. And then in the middle of the album guest Vivian Stanchel announces each instrument seconds before it is heard. Um, so yeah, it's like, that's, it's kind of a weird way to do your music. And it's just, he kind of blends all these instruments together to create this really, uh, unforgettable piece of music. But, um, 
yeah, the piece that we hear is definitely not the full 25 minute piece. <laughs> this was, was this, uh, this was contemporary at the time. I believe it was, it came out yeah, in 1973. It, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it's funny because, um, he had actually, uh, Friedkin had, um, Lalo Schifrin on board to do the score and, um, he came in and, and, uh, listened to the music and thought it was so awful uh, he fired Schifrin on the spot, and Schifrin is there with his mother and his wife, or his wife and his daughter. I mean, and he he fired him and just hated the music so much and kicked him out. And he he took the the, the I don't know if it was on a tape or whatever, and he walked out of the room and he chucked it across the parking lot because he hated this music so much. Wow, Friedkin is a madman, I tell you, he's crazy. But uh, yeah, so anyway, Schifrin didn't end up doing it, and he was trying to find. Friedkin was trying to find something, and somehow he heard this piece, or somebody recommended, you should listen to this. And he heard it and was like, oh, that is exactly what I've been looking for. And so he he used that, and he used just some other random things, like uh, uh, Christoph Penderecki, I believe, is um, somebody that we talked about with The Shining. And uh, so he uses a little bit of that, and just a lot of random music that kind of... uh, um, you know, it works really well. And then he did have uh, a little bit of music uh, composed for the film. But uh, yeah, it is sparse. Um, you yeah. know, the music is sparse. And I think, you know, again, the when you hit that, that final sequence of the exorcism itself, no music uh, for most of that sequence. It is really, really Spartan. Yeah, yeah. Jack Nietzsche did the uh, the few little bits that you hear and it's yeah. just there's there's not a lot of it there and we i mean he did uh gosh we didn't we, we talked about him briefly i think maybe back in the bullet episode he did a little bit of music there but yeah, yeah. he's just he's very not somebody we've talked about much um uh have you been to the exorcist stairs i have never been to the exorcist stairs but uh i it's it's on my list of places i'd love to go visit in george or visit period yeah georgetown yeah yeah um, famous stairs. Never been there myself either. No, there's 97 stairs. It used to be called the Hitchcock Steps until The Exorcist came out. And then all of a sudden people started calling them The Exorcist Stairs. Um, they, uh, the stuntman who rolls down as Father Karras, um, he did it twice. Uh, they actually... Um, the, the effects guy put rubber, like a half-inch rubber, all the way down the, the whole flight of stairs. And um, and then the guy, he did this stunt twice where he literally threw himself down two times from top to bottom. And I guess um, uh, uh, Jason Miller asked him, he's like, how are you doing this? How can you handle it? And the guy said, totally zen. I just go zen and I let my body just completely relax and I just, uh, I just don't, uh, I just, you know, don't feel anything. I just uh, take it in and be completely limp. Hmm. Not something I could ever do. No. Special special breed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, any other highlights you want to cover on this before we talk about money? Uh, yeah, two last things that I, I want to uh, just mention. Well, one, Oscars. It was nominated for 10 Oscars. And this was the first horror film nominated for Best Picture, which uh, I think is pretty interesting. It, it didn't win Best Picture. That went to The Sting, another amazing film from the year that we talked about. Um, Ellen Burstyn was nominated for uh, Best Actress. 
Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actor, Linda Blair, Best Supporting Actress, uh, William Friedkin, Best Director, Owen Roisman, Best Cinematographer, uh, Best Art Direction Set de- Decoration by Bill Malley and Jerry Wunderlich, uh, Film Editing by uh, Jordan Lidonopoulos, Bud Smith, Evan Lottman, and Norman Gay. Um, those were all nominated. It ended up winning for Best uh, Adapted Screenplay by William Peter Blatty and Best Sound by Robert Knudsen and Christopher Newman. Um, it did... Uh, it, it, this film did really well for itself. Golden Globes, uh, it won Best Best Picture, actually, in the Golden Globes, mm-hmm. um, Best Drama, and then BAFTA Awards, it got nominated for a bunch. It's just one of those films that uh, really tapped into uh, kind of the, uh, just, you know, a great film. I mean, it scared them, but it also, uh, people could tell that there was something great about it. But that uh, leads me to my, the next thing that I want to say, and that's just the nature of a film like this coming out and what it does to uh, people and society. I mean, Billy Graham, I mean, this was, a, this was a hugely successful film, very, very successful film. But Billy Graham watched this film, and he, he said, he went out and, and said on, on you know, one of his, um, uh, when he was preaching, he said, there is a power of evil in this film, and he was trying to get people to not watch it. Rona Barrett went on and talked about how, how like, all this stuff, like, how it had damaged uh, Linda Blair and just all this sort of stuff, even though Linda Blair wasn't psychologically damaged from the film or anything like that. But it, it was just one of those films that really um, just, you know, kind of created this, this, uh, this kind of strange um, interpretation, I guess you could almost say in society about how um, this movie was evil and how it was affecting people. And, um, what, uh, you know, it's just this, kind of this weirdness. And, um, I mean, I would say it even would, went, um, you know, beyond when it came out. I mean, even when I was in, in junior high and high school, I remember f- a friend who told me about this movie and he's just like, oh, but don't watch it. Because if you, if, if you watch it, if you see the devil in the movie, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, and I would hear things like that. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to watch that movie then. You know, and it's it's one of those things because they've got those those little um, yeah the those, subliminals yeah the little subliminal uh, one frame flash of the devil face that happens three or four times throughout yeah. the film that's really terrifying it really is but um, that's the sort of thing that happened because of this film where people um, really uh, <laughs> would were looking at it like oh this film is evil I mean nine people died in the making of this film, um, not necessarily because of the making of this film, but like uh, things like Max von Sydow's brother died. And there's a, uh, the guy who was rigging all the AC units died. Um, uh, but it was, it was just a very high number for people, um, you know, involved in the making of a film to end up dying over the course of the film. There was a set fire where over a weekend, a set caught on fire. So yeah, it's just one of those things where people look at it like, this is a possessed film. Don't watch it. It's too evil. Well, it is evil, and you probably are going to hell. <laughs> probably. That's what I get for having seen that devil in there. you saw the devil all three or four times. Very yes. effective, dramatic device, subliminals. Mm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about money. Yeah, this film, uh, this film did really well. Really, 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 <laughs> really, well. really well. It, uh, it came out uh, Boxing Day, 1973. It uh, the budget on it. What I found is twelve million dollar budget. I couldn't find anything as far as prints and advertising, um, but this film uh, went on to gross domestically 
um, about $205 million, and internationally, almost $200 million. When you adjust all of that um, and you look at where it is with, uh, with total grosses, it is um, not the, the highest on our list by total grosses. That would still be JAWS. But when you look at adjusted profit uh, per finished minute, this is now our number one film at wow. uh, almost seventeen million dollars per finished minute, sixteen point <laughs> eight. Yeah, and that's and I I really tried to not include um, numbers from the two thousand re release because that you know the, those money uh, that money uh, wouldn't that wouldn't uh, have counted. Yeah, it wouldn't have counted. So uh, this is you know for what I could uh, pinpoint this this looks to be just the money from its uh, release in the seventies. That's incredible. Sixteen point eight million dollars per finished minute for a yeah. for a horror film, yeah. That is well, it, for the age, exceedingly graphic for an yeah. R-rated film. Yeah, that's amazing. It's interesting that our top two films are both horror films: The Exorcist right? and John. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Are you? Do, have you seen the other? Uh, you know, are you a fan of the other? Uh, you know, exorcism films. I have seen not seen any of them. I think, and I, I don't mean just the Exorcist, but you know, since then, you know, we've had some recent Exorcism films. Mm. Have you seen any I, of them? I haven't. I, I I've kind of missed all of those. I mean, I, I missed all the Exorcist uh, sequels and prequels. I, I did start watching one of the prequels, um, not the uh, Rennie Harlan version, but the original Paul Schrader one. Mm-hmm. Um, I never finished it because I didn't think it was very good. Um, and I never went back to watch the Rennie Harlan edited version of it, edited and directed version. Um, and then I missed all, you know, the, oh, you know what? I take it back. I did see, was it the exorcism like of Emily the exorcism Rose? exorcism of Emily Rose, yeah. Possession That's of Gail Bowers. Exorcismus. Exorcismus. That's one. Hell Baby. The Last uh-huh. Exorcism and The Last Exorcism Part 2. Requiem, The Right. Uh, the Right was 2011. Stigmata. That sort of counts. That doesn't count. Yeah, sort of. You know, someone out there is right now making the Mexorcist. (laughs) (laughs) I kid you not. That's great. Do not. Well, so you've got some things to catch up on. We'll have to ask Tommy. I'll bet he's seen all of these. (laughs) Seen them and loves them all. (laughs) Oh yeah. I say we rank it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Head over to FlickChart, everybody. FlickChart.com slash The Next Reel. And you can see if your favorite movies line up with our favorite movies. And uh, and uh, let's see if The Exorcist cracks the top 30. All right. I was going to say, let's see if it cracks the top 10. Because I, I think it's that good. You think but it's we'll that go, we'll good? Go, we'll go for 30. We'll go for 30. All it's right. only the one Exorc- movie can throw it off. Just one movie. Yeah, that's right. I go know. for it. The Exorcist or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Is this the movie? It's not for me. This Did you is say the Exorcist? the Exorcist? Absolutely. Wow. I don't this know. Is a, this is, this is a, just a top-notch Well, I, You put I me in a tough spot right here. You do. You do, definitely. I mean, because I would say uh, Oh Brother. I hate to start the very first one with a with a rock, but I think we're going to have to just to move us not, on. You're not, you're not swayable. I'm not not on this. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's are do you, rock paper ready? scissors. Are I guess. Ready? Yep. 
One, two, three, paper. Oh, son of a monkey. Man, that was a gift. I don't know. Pazuzu. (laughs) Pazuzu was present. The Exorcist or Baron Munchausen? The Exorcist. Thank you. (laughs) The Exorcist or Fistful of Dollars? Totally The Exorcist. I did like uh, for a few dollars more better than a fistful. I'll give you the exorcist. All right. The exorcist or when Harry met Sally. I would say the exorcist. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you killed the chances for it to be in the number or above 30 with your brother. (laughs) It's going to be 31, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, bother. Oh, bother. The exorcist or asphalt jungle. The exorcist. Yeah. The exorcist or knowing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say The Exorcist. So am I. The Exorcist or Carrie? The Exorcist. Still saying Exorcist. Uh, There you go. 82. Thank you very much. Oh, no. Because Oh Brother is 81. No. All right. 82 out of 162. Stop. Re-rank it. Start again. (laughs) No, that's not. That is not right. I take that back. I'm going to cut that whole ranking. (laughs) Because that is unacceptable. It is so much better than that. I know it is. I know. Okay. All right. You ready? Yes. The Exorcist or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Exorcist. It's totally The Exorcist. Dang it. <laughs> I know. It hurts. I understand. These are all great films. <sighs> the Exorcist is better. The Exorcist or Twelve Monkeys? The Exorcist. Absolutely. The Exor- Exorcist or The World's End? So I'm The Exorcist. Yeah, okay. The Exorcist. Wow, there is some amazing poster art for The Exorcist. I love doing this. Flick chart is the best. You you get to see all these crazy posters that people make. And uh, and soon, our listeners can go to Pinterest to check them out, right? That's right. (laughs) The Exorcist or Brazil. Oh! (laughs) Man. You, You go first. Well, it's Brazil. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so tempted only on principle to make you do rock, paper, scissors, but I'm going to give you the, or I'm going to give you the Brazil on this one. All right. All right. That's funny. The exorcist or aliens. Oh, aliens, aliens. Wow. That's a, that's a hard one. That really is a hard one. I'll go with aliens though. The exorcist or the Fisher King. I would do the Fisher King. I think I would too. Oh, Friedkin or Friedkin, The Exorcist or The French Connection? French Connection. And here I would do The Exorcist. How, we might have how to rock, much? Paper, scissors. How much would you Friedkin The I would, Exorcist? I would totally. <laughs> you would totally Friedkin The Exorcist? <laughs> I don't want to cross the, the Shia threshold or anything, but. I would, I would pick my toes in Poughkeepsie. On this one. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. One, one two, two, three, scissors. Hey. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, French Connection. I got your number tonight, Junior. You do, man. All right, The Exorcist or Fight Club? Fight Club. Yeah, I'll give you a Fight Club on that one. All right, well, hey, number 20. Oh, out of 162. That feels good. That does feel good. That feels just right. 
Yeah. Just a brilliant <laughs> film. I mean, this is this is truly... I mean, it's on a lot of lists as, like, the scariest film of all time. I mean, yeah. it's really... It's, it's a pretty terrifying film. To- I totally agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really... <laughs> All right. Well, this was a uh, this was a this was a good one. Long. Yeah. We've been talking a long time. We need to wrap it up. But where do we go next week? We're going to uh, wrap up our Ellen Burstyn series with one of another of the most horrifying films ever made, Requiem for a Dream. It's a, real a film that laugh every riot. every parent should show their children to keep them from using drugs. <laughs> Not that I'm advocating that. Or, no. <laughs> but still. Uh, yes. That's funny. That's funny. I clearly, I have some re-ranking to do on mine. The Exorcist is at 88 on my own list. I have done something horribly wrong. Yeah, it should be higher. It should be higher. Especially after this conversation. I really enjoyed this. So. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right. Excellent. I got to go to bed. All right. I got to... I got a demon in the back room. Got to go deal with. Two stars. I've watched that and got scared. I will not buy that ever again. Chill into my spine. Thank you so much. Have a nice week. Oh. Two stars, but it it seems like it really achieved its uh, goal. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What was the goal? Well, it's a scary movie, right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. It scared this yeah. comment. Oh, the movie, the movie achieved its goal, yes. It I think was... the, the comment achieved its goal. No. I couldn't figure out what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, that's like, why would you give it a two-star? It should be a five-star review is what that should be. Yeah, it worked. All well, right. mine is a one-star review by R. Wagner. I doubt it's Robert Wagner, though. <laughs> I, 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 I just I don't think it's Robert Wagner's review. It's Ruprecht. Wagner. And Ruprecht Wagner. It was awful then and it's awful now. Am I the only person on earth who thought the original Exorcist movie sucked to high heaven and then back down to hell? This movie is ridiculous. It's not scary at all and very laughable. Poorly directed, poorly acted, and poorly explained throughout. The newer Exorcist movies are much better and more interesting. Wow. Clearly a fan of The Last Exorcism. <laughs> and Exorcist. And the Mexorcist. He maybe he's the one who's making. He's the actually probably making it. Yeah, the Mexorcist. That's right. I, I didn't look to see who it was. So uh, globalization. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>